Welcome to Site Check, a podcast by the Washington and Lee Law Review, where we'll dig a bit deeper into the scholarship of one of the nation's preeminent law journals. I'm your host, Matt Kaminer. Continuing with our Class of 2022 Student Note Series, today you'll hear from third-year student and Volume 79 Managing Editor, Elena Schifele. Elena's note is titled, When Statutory Interpretation Becomes Precedent, Why Individual Rights Advocates Shouldn't Be So Quick to Praise Bostock. Elena's note takes a deep dive into the Supreme Court's 2020 opinion in the case of Bostock versus Clayton County, which held that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity violates the Civil Rights Act. And Elena focuses on the jurisprudence of the opinion's author, Justice Neil Gorsuch, and specifically what she calls muscular textualism. She argues that although Justice Gorsuch's muscular textualist approach resulted in a more expansive view of civil rights in Bostock, it may ultimately lead to more rights-restrictive results in future cases. Elena's note was published last summer in Volume 78, Issue 3 of our Law Review. Elena is originally from Stuttgart, Germany, but her family now lives in Virginia. She graduated from the Honors College at Florida Atlantic University in 2019 with a degree in liberal arts and sciences and a concentration in interdisciplinary math science. During the summer after her 1L year, Elena worked as a research assistant for Professor Brandon Hasbrook. This past summer, she interned with the Federal Public Defender's Office for the Western District of Virginia in Roanoke. After graduation, She'll be heading to the law firm Sanford Heisler Sharp in Washington, D.C. for one year before beginning a judicial clerkship with Chief Judge Roger L. Gregory of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Here at WNL, outside of her obligations to law review, Elena continued her research with Professor Hasbrook. This past fall, she worked as an extern for United States Magistrate Judge David Kayer in the Western District of North Carolina, and this past semester, She returned to the FPD's office in Roanoke as an extern. I really enjoyed reading Elena's note and having this conversation with her. She has a really unique ability, I think, to break down these statutory interpretation concepts and make them approachable for everyone. And although we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, I think this conversation is very timely right now as our country is thinking more deeply about what the role of the courts is and what it should be. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with Elena Schifele. My note is about the process the Supreme Court and particularly uh, Justice Gorsuch used to interpret statutes and how that methodology might affect substantive outcomes in individual rights cases. So what I did um, in my research is I surveyed Justice Gorsuch's statutory interpretation opinions And I looked for common threads to try to put together um, the methodology that someone would derive from reading those opinions. And after I distilled that framework, I applied it to two statutory interpretation issues that have created a circuit split. And I tried to, um, to show how a muscular textualist might resolve those questions. And even though my thesis was that even though textualism, and especially Justice Gorsuch's brand of textualism, is heralded as this neutral and formulaic process, particularly post-Bostock, it often produces rights-restrictive outcomes. So what led you to this topic? When I read the Supreme Court's opinion in Bostock versus Clayton County, 
in the summer of 2020 after it was handed down. What struck me was that both the majority and the dissents purported to use the same process, um, that process being textualism as championed by Justice Scalia, but they obviously reached very different outcomes. And around the same time, I was starting to think about what my note topic might be, um, and that was a question that really intrigued me um, and something that I wanted to get to the bottom of. Um, and then as I started to develop that into a full note, um, I wanted it to be broader than just the Bostock opinion and to reach statutory interpretation methodology more generally to be more broadly applicable. Your note really does sprout, I think, at least in identifying this brand of statutory interpretation from the Supreme Court's 2020 opinion in Bostock versus Clayton County. Can you explain for the lay listener, your understanding of what the court decided in that case and particularly how it got there, because that's, I think, a, a linchpin point of your note and how it describes the methodologies both by the majority and by the dissent and how it may reflect an ideology that's different than what the layperson might expect when they hear about the holding and the abstract. So what, what did you take from the Bostock case? So the issue before the court in Bostock was whether discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and um, gender identity is discrimination on the basis of sex under Title VII. And in the majority opinion, what Justice Gorsuch did is he pulled out his dictionary from, 19, from the 1960s um, and he looked at the definitions of the operative words, discrimination and sex. And he took those two individual definitions and he put them together and he said based on these definitions here is what this provision means and based on those definitions he concluded that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is covered by title 7 because somebody who discriminates on those bases is treating people differently solely on the basis of their gender and that's a very like literal process of taking the words, looking in the dictionary, and putting those definitions back together. And what the dissents did was, rather than turning right to the dictionary, they thought about what would an ordinary person who heard this sentence in 1964 when this statute was enacted, what would they think of? What would their first impression be as to what the statute covered? Both Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh make the point that no one at that time would have thought that sexual orientation and gender identity were covered by the statute because that wasn't something that was broadly within the discourse at the time the way that it is now. So it's often cases like Bostock where the general public becomes at least somewhat aware of what the consequences of certain modes of judicial philosophy are. It's those cases, the cases that heavily weigh on our sense of right and wrong and on our sense of policy in which these approaches to the law are become more accessible to lay people and become more important to lay people. Why should someone who's not deep in the legal world care about statutory interpretation and the way that courts approach statutory interpretation? That's a great question. As I attempt to show in my note, the process that courts use to interpret statutes can correlate to substantive outcomes. So in that sense, it's not just an academic or purely technical legal question 
about what process best respects legislative authority and the role of judges in our democracy, the statutory interpretation methodology can directly affect any aspect of our lives that is regulated by statutes. And even where that is in a less high profile context, it can still have a really significant impact. Because so many parts of our lives are statutorily regulated, um, your ability to vote is regulated by the Voting Rights Act, retirement pensions are regulated under ERISA, access to health care and health insurance is regulated under the Affordable Care Act, you know, and on and on and on. And so even in a, a case that seems like it's just this narrow technical question about this seemingly insignificant, like, for example, ERISA provision, the trickle-down effect can be significant, um, and there can be real consequences from what might seem like, you know, an inconsequential case. The other thing which I am trying to show in my note is that because statutory interpretation is something that transcends the substantive legal issue in a particular case, the consequences of a statutory interpretation decision are so much greater than the substantive outcome. Because of that, it's really important to think about how that methodology might apply in a different context rather than just focusing on the specific substantive outcome in that case. You have to think about the big picture. So for, again, for those people who don't necessarily traffic in this sort of area of the law, what are the options available in terms of ways you can interpret a statute? Obviously, that's a loaded question. and the, the more granular you get, the more options there are. But at a big picture level, what are the broad options available for judges interpreting statutes? And where does the approach reflected by Justice Gorsuch and Bostak, what you call muscular textualism, where does that fit on that spectrum? There are different ways to define that spectrum. Um, some common ones are through the primary goal of the interpretive method. The one that I think is the most helpful and the one that through which I thought about my note is a definition relating to the types of statutory context that proponents of an interpretive method will consider. So at one end of the spectrum, you have purposivists who will consider almost any context, including legislative history, contemporaneous social events. And the goal in a purposivist analysis is to figure out, based on that wide breadth of context, what was the legislature's purpose when they enacted that provision. Moving along that spectrum, almost to the other end, textualism takes a much more constrained view of what context is permissible. New textualism, which is kind of the brand of textualism that Justice Scalia championed and used, is famous for its rejection of legislative history as legitimate statutory context. Um, and Justice Scalia, in so many statutory interpretation cases, if the majority relied on legislative history, would write a separate concurrence just to point out the fact that he doesn't agree with that use of legislative history and he would refuse to sign on to that discrete portion of the opinion that relied on legislative history, even if he had no problem with any part of the ultimate outcome. What I argue in my note is that muscular textualism takes that one step further and it further narrows the scope of relevant statutory context toward this, the text and the text alone approach. Why do you think it's important that we follow these minute but really impactful trends 
in the way that the individual justices approach statutory interpretation as a forecast for how they might decide future cases? For, I would say, at least the last roughly 40 years, textualism has been a relevant methodology, right? That was roughly when Justice Scalia started pushing the idea that the role of the judge within our democracy is to respect legislative enactments, and the best way to do that is to focus on the enacted text, the words that Congress actually chose to put in the statute. So even if that isn't going to be true in, say, 300 years, that's still something that is going to be around for a while. And so because the methodology ties into this broader question of how judges interact with the other branches of government, the rhetoric in these some of these decisions is indicative of more than just what the judge thinks is the correct statutory interpretation methodology. So in Bostock, for example, Justice Gorsuch wrote that only the written word is law. Um, in another case, he wrote that words are how the law constrains power. And that rhetoric feeds into the social discourse around the Supreme Court. And um, it becomes, as you kind of see in confirmation hearings, it's not just a debate among the justices of how statutes should be interpreted. It's a broader societal debate about what judges should be doing and what the proper role of the judge is. Um, and we should think about that. What do we want our judiciary to do? Um, and as we're appointing new justices, what are the right sets of values that we want them to bring to the court? And even though statutory interpretation is this very technical, legalistic process, it speaks to these broader questions of judicial philosophy and judicial temperament. And it is often reflected in those broader conversations about the role of the judiciary. Yeah, I think your point about confirmation hearings is really important because this is one of those questions that for those who follow Judge, now Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's hearings, you see how much the senators want to get to these important questions. Justice Elena Kagan said in her confirmation hearing, we're all textualists now. So there's a very interesting glean into one, how the justices think that these cases should be decided, how they view this method of interpretation, but also the degree of deference and respect they give to how the court has viewed this mode of interpretation in the past, even if it's not necessarily always reflected in every single opinion that comes in front of the court. How would you define muscular textualism in a narrow sense? And where can we start to see it from Justice Gorsuch in the Bostock opinion itself? For purposes of my note, I defined it as the method of statutory interpretation that judges or practitioners can derive from Justice Gorsuch's statutory interpretation opinions because he writes them in this very formulaic step-by-step -step process and it really is possible to put together this framework and analytical process based on those opinions. And I called it muscular textualism because it is a form of textualism, but it's so much more rigorous in its adherence to what Justice Gorsuch portrays as the plain meaning of the text to the exclusion of other indicia of statutory meaning. And muscular textualism as compared to other forms of textualism um, is characterized by two things. The first is its extreme literalness, which I think results 
most immediately from its heavy reliance on dictionaries to ascertain the meaning of words. And it's also characterized by its extremely narrow view of permissible context. And it even rejects some context that new textualists would consider. And that is seen in, I think, in two places. The first, like I was just saying, is through the rhetoric that Justice Gorsuch uses. You know, only the written word is law, words are how the law constrains power, that kind of thing. Which to me shows the general tone and mindset of someone applying that interpretive method. It's also seen through his heavy reliance on dictionary and a reluctance to just consider what meaning of the word first comes to mind when you look at it in the context of a particular statutory provision. So if you have a statute that says that, you know, something should be used a certain way, and, you know, you have this question before the court that for some reason turns on the meaning of the word use, I think you would have a pretty good sense based on whatever the provision is, what the word use means in that context. You don't need to turn to a dictionary to just have a, a basic understanding of what's probably going on. But in you don't see that in these opinions. You don't see this first initial step of what is my first reaction when I hear this statute. Instead, what Justice Gorsuch does is he first turns to the dictionary and that's where he starts every single time. So I think as your note points out and as the title implies, the part of the title is why individual rights advocates shouldn't be so quick to praise Bostock. For those who champion civil rights, it's very, I think, tempting to just celebrate the Bostock decision as a win. And I think on a superficial level, Bostock was an opportunity for textualists to prop up their interpretive approach, or at least the approach that Justice Gorsuch takes, as non-ideological. Because like you said, he focused so deeply on the role of words as constraining power. And the, in particular, it emphasizes the virtue of constraining power as a an aspiration the judges should look to. But your note argues, I think really persuasively, that this muscular textualism might actually lead to the restriction, not the expansion of civil rights in the long term. It, it, may, have it may have led to expansion of perceived rights in this case, but that this might be an anomaly amongst this interpretive method that may actually lead to contraction of individual rights in the long term. Why do you think that is? I think the primary reason for that is muscular textualism's total rejection of what I called the statute's social context. So as defined in my note, the social context is what was happening in the world at the time that prompted Congress to consider the policy underlying the statute. And to me, that's not the same thing as the legislative intent that purposivists are searching for. It's less technical. So taking the Voting Rights Act as an example, the social context shows that the Voting Rights Act is a remedial statute, so it's, it provides a remedy, and it was passed to remedy voting rights violations. I don't think that's a controversial point, and I don't have to pour over hundreds or thousands of pages of legislative history to figure that out. Just a general understanding of history lets me come to that conclusion. And for these remedial individual rights focused statutes, social context is not only easy to determine, but it can also tell you a lot about what that statute is supposed to do. Muscular textualists won't consider that aspect. And by looking at the statute in this 
textual vacuum, it kind of feels like they're missing the point sometimes. Like they're ignoring that very common sense, straightforward thing that the statute was enacted to do. Maybe taking a less high profile example, the second interpretive issue that I consider in my note is this question of whether plasma centers are service establishments within the meaning of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and therefore whether they're covered and regulated by the, the ADA. And a plasma center is where you would go to donate blood plasma. And the cases, the circuit level cases that have considered this question, for the most part have focused on the narrow technical question of what the word service means. And the debate is primarily whether a service requires that the consumer transfer some sort of monetary payment to whoever is providing the service. And because in a plasma center, the consumer is the person donating their blood plasma, but they're actually getting paid by the plasma center for that blood plasma. And several cases held that because of that, plasma centers are not service establishments and not regulated by the ADA. But if you look at kind of that social context and this common sense consideration of why we have the ADA, its purpose is to ensure that people with disabilities can participate in society to the fullest extent, just like able-bodied persons. And if that is the lens through which we, we view this question of whether the ADA should apply, then it seems pretty straightforward that the ability to go to a plasma center is part of participation in society, right? That's something that able-bodied persons have the opportunity to do. And there's no reasonable basis to draw a distinction that people with disabilities shouldn't have that same access. Or maybe there is a reasonable basis, but that doesn't come up in any of the court's opinions. By focusing on that narrow question of what is a service, you're leaving aside all of those questions that the ADA is very much aimed at addressing. That's interesting. And I think the question of plasma centers and whether they're service establishments under the ADA, I think brings into focus the distinctions, right, between a, a purpose-based approach, certainly different from a muscular textualist approach. And also, and Bostock makes, shows that, you know, I, I think there's a tendency just to think that and it was my first impression then getting into your note that the difference between new textualism and muscular textualism is this granular, narrow difference that divides conservatives in an academic way that it doesn't lead to differences in results. But the reality is the new textualists are in dissent in Bostock, by and large. So what are some of the opinions of Justice Gorsuch that you came across in which those differences between muscular textualism and new textualism appeared most stark to you where the differences become really clear? I am going to answer your question, but first I'm going to take issue with it. I think this distinction between new textualism and muscular textualism very much is an academic distinction. I don't think that anyone on the court would divide themselves in that way. That said, I do think that this debate, as we've kind of discussed, this is more than an academic debate in that it shows the trajectory of what is changing in terms of the mindset around statutory interpretation. The other piece of that is that a lot of statutory interpretation cases 
high-profile cases like Bostock being the exception, tend to yield unanimous opinions, they're not very long, and they're not very divisive. But when courts later rely on those unanimous, straightforward opinions in more divisive cases, that's that precedential effect. Even if it doesn't have the same stare decisis weight, it is still precedent that is still relied on and quoted in future cases. And that trajectory of how that rhetoric is changing becomes relevant in the high-profile cases. It's only in the high-profile cases that you see this distinction on the same question. And because these differences are a question of degree, not a question of kind, even in cases like Bostock, it's hard to see when you're looking at just one opinion. So I was only able to break out these differences in my note after reading Justice Gorsuch's other opinions and starting to put together the pieces of where those differences are, looking at his jurisprudence as a whole. To answer your question, I think the differences between muscular textualism and new textualism stand out, at least to me, in these cases that touch on individual civil rights issues. That's Bostock, Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion in Comcast versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media, which is about racial discrimination, Niz Chavez versus Garland, which is an immigration case. And it's in those cases that you see the court just marching through a series of interpretive steps and leaving the people that are at the core of this, of this case, of this substantive dispute, out of the opinion and to an extent out of the statute as well. The statute just becomes about this very formulaic interpretive process. But that's also not unique to muscular textualism. You see the same thing happening in new textualism as well. And so because it really is a question of degree, it's much easier to see looking at the jurisprudence as a whole rather than looking at individual cases. So you touched a bit a minute ago on the way your note analyzes the ADA question with plasma standards, but I'm curious to hear you expand on the other statutory issue that's divided certain courts that you touch on in your note, which is whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits certain restrictive voter ID laws. I think that's one that certainly a lot of people can relate to. It's a contemporary issue politically. It's one that's drawn a lot of scrutiny. And I think it's those, like we've kind of talked about, it's those sorts of cases where the magnifying glass is really on the interpretive approach of judges, because that is where, as you kind of alluded to when I asked you about why this is important to people, it's those sort of questions that bring the layperson as close to the judge's process as possible because of the implications. So what what did you glean from the interpretive approach you took trying to analyze that issue from a muscular textualist perspective? I think the first thing I want to note in that respect is that when I started writing my note, I was writing on somewhat of a, of a cleaner slate than when it was published. Because at the time that I started, there wasn't a recent case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that brought a vote denial case before the court. There had been several vote dilution cases where the allegation is that because of how the congressional map is drawn or how some other part of the process, that someone's vote doesn't count the same amount as someone else's vote. And the court had this framework called the jingles factors that they apply to vote denial 
vote, sorry, vote dilution cases. But there hadn't been a vote denial case where the allegation is that the whatever voting regulation it is, is denying someone the ability to vote, period. That has since changed, as I alluded to, because the court decided the Brnovich case last term, which was a vote denial case. And that is kind of woven through my analysis of the voter ID question. And any court that considers the voter ID question in the future is going to have to do so with reference to Brnovich, at least in part. That said, it wasn't a voter ID that was at issue in Brnovich. Um, it was what the court called a time, place, and manner restriction. So where you vote, when you vote, how you vote. And what I tried to do in my note was think about that framework that I had just constructed and apply that to the Voting Rights Act and think about how voter ID laws would fit into the meaning of the Voting Rights Act that I derived through the muscular textualist analysis. And my biggest takeaway from going through that process was that what courts often portray as self-evident, you know, you look at the dictionary and then the dictionary gives you this definition, and so that means that the statute must mean this thing. That's not all that straightforward and self-evident. Most words have multiple definitions. Those definitions aren't identical across different dictionaries. And so at the end of the day, while an opinion's rhetoric might suggest that a judge is applying a neutral process, there's a lot more room for value judgments in what Professor Kerry Franklin calls shadow decision points. So that includes which dictionary to use, within that dictionary, which definition to use, and at the very start of the process, which words in the statute to focus on. And the judgments that are made at all of those shadow decision points can affect the ultimate outcome. But because muscular textualism glosses over those shadow decision points, or in some cases favor favors a narrowing construction at those shadow decision points, because of this focus on the text, and if something isn't clearly within the text, then it's cut out of the equation, it could have serious rights restrictive effects because the default is, you know, here's what the text says and everything else is irrelevant. Your note's conclusion forecasts to some degree the possibility that this muscular textualist influence from Justice Gorsuch on the court might expand beyond the statutory context and maybe into other uh, areas of interpretation of the Constitution and other issues. I think in many ways it raises more questions than answers about what we can expect and how far that leakage can go. But, and this probably leaves the scope of what you really argue in the note, but what do you think that influence can look like and what, what does that say about the future of at least individual rights in America as we understand them if that approach was modified and tweaked but then implemented into interpretation of the Constitution and maybe in some broader way even to more common law-based issues. How, what, what impact does that have if we take the priorities that muscular textualism brings to statutes and we start to prioritize those values in other areas? What impact do you think that could have? I think the way in which these muscular textualist principles move into other areas of the law is through these questions about the scope of judicial authority and what 
judges should do, what their role in our democracy is. I don't have I don't have a clear answer. I think that's a really big question that we're grappling with as a society right now. But to the extent that muscular textualism is portrayed as this completely ideologically neutral process, um, and there's this narrative that judges are just following the words of the law, who the judges has no impact on the outcome in individual cases. I don't think that's necessarily true. And even if you subscribe to the opinion that that's what judges should do, which I think that's, there's a fair argument on that, you know, on that side that we shouldn't be putting our opinions into these statutes and we should just be looking at the law. Even muscular textualism, I think, falls short at that point. And because of those shadow decision points where you still have to make those value judgments and everyone has biases. I have biases, you have biases, Justice Gorsuch has biases and Justice Kagan has biases. And those biases will come into play at those shadow decision points. And I think it would be better if we were transparent about that and accepted that rather than trying to gloss over it and portraying it as this ideologically neutral process because that's what we've now decided we need, even though it's kind of unrealistic, at least based on the tools we have at our disposal right now to have that kind of ideologically neutral process. And I think having that level of transparency and being honest about the places in which value judgments are made would permit greater accountability. And to the extent that muscular textualism prevents that transparency and tries to hide the substantive effect that it ultimately has, I think in that respect, it's a serious threat to individual rights. So I have to imagine, at least to some degree, that the way you constructed this note, which I really enjoyed, was impacted to some degree on the class taken in particular. You know, we're almost at our last day of classes. I'm in the midst of finishing Professor Hasbrook's statutory interpretation practicum. It's been one of my favorite classes. The school regularly has, you know, dozens of people on the wait list. The kinds of conversations we're having here and that your note fleshes out are of the kind that we're having in class and that I think more people frankly should be having. How did those conversations, and you know, I even know you cite cases in your note that we read in class, how did your experience in that class and those conversations impact the way you were thinking about these issues? Because like you said, with regard to Brnovich, there are one, legal developments you know, in the real world that are happening, as you write, that change the lens, you look at the issues, but there are also probably personal developments you're having when you're in classes and learning more about these areas than others that either give you a new angle you want to take or help you refine the way you write. How did your experience in that class, and maybe there are also others, impact the way that you conceptualized this issue? I think the biggest impact was looking beyond the substantive outcome and thinking critically about the process that the court is using. And then based on that process, thinking about the broader implications. Obviously, there are broader substantive implications from Bostock, um, and I'm sure it will be cited in many future cases that touch on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. 
but the things that I focused on because of my experience in Professor Hasbrook's practicum and because of also my experience in other classes where throughout law school you're supposed to look past the narrow substantive issue and think about how the court got to where it ended up. And looking at it through that lens, that's how I got to the end of my note. If you look at all of the cases that I cite in my note, I think with one exception, no two cases are about the same statute. And so I really did just look past the substance and focus on the judicial process, which is something that I was able to do because of Professor Hasbrook's practicum and because, you know, because the, that's what I had been learning in law school. Okay, the last thing I'm going to need you to do is a segment we call Quick Review. I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions, and you should give me the first answer that comes to your mind. Ready? Okay. Question number one. What is the number one thing you like to do in your free time that has nothing to do with law school? I like to ride my horse. Wow. Do you have, do you have a horse in Lexington? Or? I do. Where do you keep it? Um, he's at a barn maybe 15 minutes up the road. Wish I'd known that before today. <laughs> what is your go-to restaurant in Lexington and what is your order? Heliotrope. And I love their Portobello pizza. Wow, that's incredible. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> Oxford comma, yes or no, and explain your answer. Always. I don't know if I have an explanation. It just is what I learned and something that was ingrained in me that you always need an Oxford comma. What's your favorite season? Fall. Favorite dessert? Creme brulee. What chore do you absolutely despise doing? You could say all of them. I hate making beds. Me too. It feels like there's, something's always in the way somewhere when I'm making a bed. <laughs> what was your first job? I worked at a barn taking care of horses. What's the most important piece of advice you'd give to an incoming first-year law student? To take the time during legal writing to learn about the Blue Book because it really is an important skill throughout most of law school. Amen. What's the most important piece of advice you'd give to a student who's joining a journal and is about to start their own student note process? To pick a topic that you really care about and that you're ready to think about all the time for an entire year because the best notes are the ones where you can tell right off the bat that someone has some sort of personal connection with what they're writing about or some strong passion or really thorough interest and is ready to be immersed in that topic for that amount of time. Thanks for listening to episode three of Sight Check. Alana's note can be found on our Law Review website. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon.